Well, this morning we have Nick Krause back with us again. Thanks for coming again, Nick. Um, continuing our study uh, through the book of Philippians. If you would stand as we read Philippians 4, uh, verses 2 through 9. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any, excellent, if any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us alone in the world, but you've given us your church, you've given us your spirit, and you've given us your word. And I pray for Nick this morning as he comes and opens it to us that you would bless his words, that his words might be your words. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. It's good to see everyone. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 2. It is really good to see you. Been driving a lot, have spent a lot of time in a couple of different states. I too had uh, surprising news and uh, kind of a, a rough week, but also a lot of joy in it. Um, I got to spend some day, the last days with my grandmother uh, in her last days, and it just reminded me just how much of a gift it is to be able to have that opportunity. Like, uh, I resonate with you, Scott, with your mom, uh, just, but being able to have that time to spend with loved ones before they pass away. And it's the only assurance that we have in those moments is that they're at peace with God that they are reconciled to him because that's the only place we can have our hope. And uh, we also went to a wedding, which was awesome. It was uh, really enjoyable to get to spend time with uh, family and friends and celebrate a wedding. And even that, though, we're looking forward to the great wedding feast of the Lamb because those who have been reconciled to God have, are at peace with him. They have their sins forgiven. And what we're talking about in our text is about that peace. The God of peace loves his church. That's what was preached on last week, ending in verse 1 of chapter 4, where he says about five different ways that he loves the church. When he says, therefore, my brothers, he considers them 
and he talks of them as family, whom I love, whom I desire or I long for, my joy, my crown, and he ends off with my beloved. And he gives them that command to stand firm, to be at peace with one another, to be united. And that's what we're going to be reading about in our text. See, the God of peace loves his church so much that he's given us his Holy Spirit to give us strength, to endure every trial. He's given us his Holy Spirit to enlighten our eyes in the knowledge of who Christ is, to be be able to apprehend the worth of Jesus Christ. But he's even done more than that. In his word, he's given us a plan for harmony to be at peace with one another, a prescription for our anxiety so that we can be at peace within ourselves, and also a program for living because we were saved maybe some of us a week ago, years ago, years and years ago. We have a lot of living to do in the presence of God. That's what we're going to study this morning. Let me read to you Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 2. I entreat Yodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored by my, side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your reasonableness or gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. If we were to look first at God's plan for harmony, look at just these two names here. Verse 2, I entreat Eutyche and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. This is a phrase that has come up time and time again in the book of Philippians. He's actually really, really concerned with how people think, with how people think about themselves and how we are to think about others and how we are to think about God. This phrase came up in Philippians chapter uh, 127 when he told them, have this mind, or let this manner of life, let this thinking be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. And this is the, where the phrase comes up, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is the same mind that he commanded them to have with one another in Philippians 2, verse 5, when he said, have this mind 
What mind? Verse 4, one that's humble, one that considers other people's more important than themselves. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus. Hence why he says that they are to agree, literally be of the same mind in the Lord. This plan for harmony is rooted in the fact that we belong to one people. The world right now is trying to divide people up, isn't it? Trying to divide them up into different people group, different ethnicities, to self-identify in numerous different ways to where you kind of look for your label to see what identity group do I belong to. For the Christian, our label that's written that tells us who we are and what people we belong to is the Lord Jesus Christ. We are citizens of heaven. We are citizens of heaven so much so that as Paul continues, he says that their names are written in the book of life. This is the roll sheet of heaven. The book of life is the roll sheet of heaven, and it comes up time and time again. It comes up in uh, Daniel, Psalms, uh, Luke ten twenty. Jesus talks about those who are written in the book of life. And maybe most famously, at the very end of time in Revelation 21, we're told that God's going to bring out the book of life to see who's the names of his people who are entering into the new heavens and the new earth. And who's written in the book of life here? It's Syndike, Judea, uh, uh, Clement, and all the other gospel workers. The reason why Paul's even talking here about peace, talking about this citizenship that we have in Christ, is he's actually leading it to a very specific purpose. He wants the church to be at peace with one another, specifically these two women, godly women who he describes as laborers who have been hit by him side by side with him in the gospel, fellow co-workers, fellow laborers. These two women have been at conflict with one another, and it has caused a decent amount of strife. And if we're going to be honest with ourselves— Paul, as he's been talking, he's been trying to guard the church, the peace of the church, against the onslaught of false teachers, false teachers coming from without, who are trying to draw our minds away from, the, away from Christ, away from the body of Christ, and to believing lies and following after those. And we probably, some of us in this room, have experienced children or loved ones that we've seen deceived and leave the church. But far more common is the problem of having internal conflict. Problems arise from within. People who are written in the book of life who are at contention in conflict with one another. And the plan he has for them is to realize their identity is in Christ. They belong to the people of God. They're written in God's book of life. They all have eternal life. They are to agree with each other in the Lord. Be of the same 
mind. And so we don't believe, so that we don't believe the propaganda, I think, of our culture. Notice what he's saying, not just about any church members, but he's talking about women here. The propaganda of our culture would have us believe that the church thinks that women are less than, that women are not equal to men in the church because Paul does not allow women to preach or teach or to be officers in the church and the organization of it. And people looking into the church see that and say, oh, they must believe that women are less than. Well, the same guy who wrote 1 Timothy and Titus is the same guy who wrote this. And what does he say of these women? He says that they are his side-by-side laborers. They are his joint laborers in the gospel, which many think is just a euphemism, just talking about gospel ministry. He thanked them before at the very beginning of the letter for being his partners in the gospel, aka the, or also known as the spread of the faith among all the nations. And now he's saying that they are his fellow laborers, his fellow workers, numbered along with Clement and the rest. Now, we don't know who exactly this true companion who's delivering this letter. Probably my guess is Epaphroditus, who's to be this true companion, but we don't really know. What's important here when we look at this true companion that's asked to get involved is, notice that this conflict, this personal conflict, this, per- this conflict of personalities between Eudia and Syndicate is not left as a private matter. Once it erupts and gets beyond just a private uh, conflict that they, that they uh, can resolve in private, once it becomes public, that's when the church gets involved because the unity of the church is at stake. That's why we have teachings from Jesus in Matthew 18 saying that if you're at conflict with one another, first go one-on-one, verse 15 of chapter 18. First go one-on-one, but if you can't resolve it there, bring someone else. And if you can't resolve it there, verse 17 says that we're to bring it to the church. This is our plan for harmony. And harmony is rooted, this plan is rooted in the fact that we're to value one another, valuing as Paul does, seeing that each and every individual member of the church has a value contribution, have a valuable contributive role. I don't know if that's a word. That we each have something of value to offer, that we value other people so high that we maybe even value more than ourselves and take a vested interest as the church, as the body of Christ, to see that everyone gets along with one another. That's the plan for harmony. In verses four through seven, we get God's prescription. The God of peace gives us a prescription for our anxieties. But before we can get to God's prescription, we have to see the command. Verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. 
Paul, just like when we look, when we're going to look at uh, do not be anxious. Paul's not commanding us to be in a specific emotional state. We need to have a prescription for anxieties because we need to be at peace within ourselves. We need to be rooted in treasuring the Lord Jesus Christ above all else. This is not an emotional state. To treasure, uh, I believe this is from Tim Keller. Uh, To rejoice is to treasure a thing. To assess its value. To reflect on its beauty and importance until your heart rests in it. If we really value our pride, if we really value our money and our finances, if we really value our reputation, when people, when there's conflict in the church and people try to take that away from us, we have this emotional eruption that happens directed at that individual. One of the ways that we fight against that is we first and foremost, are those things good? Is reputation good? Yes, Proverbs says a good reputation is worth way more than gold. Should we be you know, concerned with people slandering us? Yes. But what's the thing that we're to treasure most? What's the thing that if they, if someone tries to take that away from us, that's what's going to get us enraged. That's the thing that's going to cause an eruption. It should be Our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, if we're going to rejoice in anything, Paul says this over and over again in this letter, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it, rejoice. And it's in light of this command to rejoice always, he's not commanding an emotional state, and we're going to see that more clearly, with the negative version, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Okay, so are we, are we still dealing with an emotional state? I don't think so. We're told at the very beginning of this to be of one mind. The key to understanding this is to realize that this is not an emotional state, but this is... Um, what Paul is talking about here uh, is kind of it's linked to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter six, when he says about five different times, "Be anxious for nothing." Verse twenty-five, he says to you, tell, uh, "Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, whether you'll eat or drink or what you'll wear." Verse twenty-seven, and which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Verse 31, do not be anxious. What shall we, saying, what shall we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, those who do not know God. But your heavenly Father knows all that you need. What we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is the difference between concern and worry. 
It's the difference between concern and worry. Worry is, that's fretting is one that's not trusting in the fact of God's sovereignty over everything. Just like we could be upset when other people, when we have conflict among ourselves, when people slander us, taking away our reputation, which is a good thing. So we are called throughout scripture to be concerned. But there's a fine line between concern about getting to church on time, concern about if I'm going to have a job or not, and that turning next week or getting laid off. There's a fine line between that concern and not trusting in the God who is sovereign over everything. Jesus, when he commanded them, do not be anxious, rooted in the fact that God is the great provider who has ordained all our days. He cares for birds. He cares for plants. He cares for this earth. Do you really think he's not going to care for you? The fine line between concern about our stuff, concern about our well-being, and being anxious is when we're not trusting in God. The sovereignty of God to be at peace within ourselves, the part of the prescription for our anxieties is using the sovereignty of God like a pillow that we can rest our head in at night and be able to go asleep knowing that God is in control of it all. That's what we're to lay our head down. Hence why Paul immediately moves on that do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, what? The key to the prescription is in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul's prescription, if I, he gave about five different words for prayer, is basically when you're anxious, pray, and then pray again, and then pray again, and then pray again, and then pray again. A heart that's rejoicing in the Lord, that treasures him above all things, yes, it's going to cause us, like Paul is doing right now, to want to see other people treasure the Lord. But it's also going to be, create a peace within ourselves because we know that he loves us and cares for us and has orchestrated every single event in our lives in order to produce his glory and our good. That's why he adds to this. It's one of these words we have translated as prayer. All of these are different kinds of prayer, supplications, offering our needs, bearing our burdens to the Lord. And notice when we, even when we're bearing our burdens to the Lord, lifting up a request for dying moms, grandmothers, loved ones, when we offer up requests of true need, financial need to the Lord, even when we offer up these needs, we're told to do it with thanksgiving. This is not a trite statement. Paul is someone who knows from need. He knows from lack the truth of these things. Paul is the man who's right now sitting in prison awaiting his death sentence. And he's saying, offer up your supplications, yes, with thanksgiving. 
Why? Well, because we're to rejoice in the Lord always. We're at peace with God. We have salvation. We have promised eternal life. In verse 5, I kind of skipped over that. He said, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The lead-in to do not be anxious for everything is to know that the Lord is near. This text is, I think, only talking about one way, but there's two different ways that the Lord is near to us. David is constantly talking in the Psalms about the fact that his God is ever-present, ever-watching, that he sees what the wicked are doing and what the righteous are doing, and that he is with his people. The promise of God throughout Scripture for all believers has always been, ever since Abraham, has been, I will be your God and you'll be my people. Even at Mount Sinai, God was with them on the mountain giving commands. And he had the Israelites build a tent so that he would be dwelling with his people. Not because his throne room was in a tent, an earthly tent in the center of this wilderness. His throne room's in heaven. But because God is all-powerful, because God is everywhere present, he can even be present with his people through all circumstances, even the circumstances when we feel like he's not there. But I think Paul's talking about the Lord at hand in a different sense, because just in, verse, in chapter 3, we were told that our citizenship is in heaven. From it, from heaven, we await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity, Christians in particular, are people who are awaiting our Savior to come again. There's only one more re- moment in redemption hi- of redemptive history that we are waiting to happen, and that's the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he will judge the wicked and he will save his people. That's what we are awaiting And that should give us confidence. We are at the end of the age. His Holy Spirit is empowering us now. We have a foretaste of what heaven's going to be like in the redemption that we experience in our own souls when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a foretaste of it, but it hasn't happened yet. But we know it's happening soon. Paul gives us here, the God of peace in his word has given us a plan for harmony, that we can be at peace with one another because, let's face it, we're all sinners. There's going to be a lot of personality conflicts in this room that's going to seek to divide us. And also, each and every one of us struggles with anxieties from all the pressures of life. That's why he's provided us the prescription for anxieties in prayer, that we know God is near We know he God hears us and cares about us, and we can lift every single need and concern to him at any moment. That's why Paul tells us to be praying ceaselessly, without ceasing, throughout our days. And finally, Paul gives us a program for living. We live before the God of peace, and he gives us a program for how we are to think and what we are to do. And he does it in a very comprehensive list. 
the key word to focus on in verse 8 to see this program for living, the program for our thoughts, is that last phrase in verse 8, think about these things. The word there, talking, it's a command. Think about these things. Meditate on. Fill your mind with these eight things. When we seek peace, our culture tells us that we need to empty our minds. You have stress and anxieties. You're working, worrying about a conflict at work or conflict in the church. Just go home, get in a quiet place, take a deep breath, clear your mind. Paul's advice is a little different. Paul's advice is to fill your mind, to focus and meditate on eight godly principles that if we focus on these things, it's going to produce peace in our hearts. What are these things? The peace, the finally brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, those are the things we're to fill our minds with. Um, I might be, uh, when we talk about this program for living and being at peace, I'm going to attempt to t- touch an American sacred cow. So don't be offended because this is God's word. What we're to fill our minds with and focus on, what do we typically focus on? What are we constantly consuming? Is it not entertainment? My wife and I, uh, we were talking with my mother, mother-in-law and kind of be- bemoaning the fact there's hardly any TV shows anymore and probably never was that was just not filled with sin and immorality. We are to fill our mind with what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. We tend to want to fill our minds in all of our free time with entertainment, with things that are pleasing, things that make us happy and feel good. And sometimes regardless of the content, I don't think it's legalistic of me to say that Christians watching Game of Thrones is hard for me to fathom because of the content that's in it. This guide that we're looking at here, this list that we're looking at here, is like a list of, okay, we are at peace with God. How then should we live? We're given eight principles of godliness that we can use as a test to say, What am I entertaining myself with? What am I reading? What shows am I watching? What movies am I go what movies am I going to? Concerts, you name it. Look at these things and kind of use it as a test. Is it true? Does it promote the truth? If we fill our minds constantly with lies, we will be deceived. I watched an interview with some of the, um, it was like the writers of Modern Family. And they intentionally wrote the characters, the homosexual characters, to be the funniest people on the show 
so that the audience really connected with them to see, you know, homosexuality is not so bad. And they saw a great sense of accomplishment in the fact that they had many, many letters coming in from people who said they changed their minds on homosexuality because of that TV show. If we constantly choose to entertain ourselves with lies, things that promote things that are not good, untrue, we will be deceived. The fact that we've been given so much grace does not eliminate cause and effect relationships. If you imbibe dirt as your steady diet and eat rocks every single day, you will die, no matter how much of a Christian you are. And the same thing is true. If you eat a steady diet of video games where you're murdering people, listening to music where drugs are the epitome of what you should be striving for, sexual immorality is okay, and not only that, but is it okay, but it's something you should be going for, I'll be surprised if you don't end up looking like those people. I'll be surprised if you don't start imitating and valuing those things that you are constantly imbibing 24-7. Dear friends, this is, this is a word for me. This, is a, this was just as convicting for me in studying this text, and I hope it's convicting for you. Whatever is true, test your entertainment against that. Test your entertainment against what is honorable. How much of our entertainment, and we could not just focus on entertainment. We could focus on lots of different areas, but maybe the one that hits me the hardest is entertainment. Honorable. Things that last. We are to focus on things that endure. Things that when we look at, we say, yes, that is good. We're not to fill our minds with things that are trivial. Whatever is just, righteous, this word could be righteous, upright. In ordinary uses, though, when talking about human beings, it's talking about innocent, blameless, pious. We don't want to focus on sin. If our TV shows are full of sin and grotesque immorality, is that something we should really be filling our minds with? Whatever is pure, without sin, blameless. If we fill our heads with people who are sinning, what do you think is going to happen to us? Whatever is lovely, commendable, we could keep going on. The summary of this is, if there is any excellence, if there is any things that are worthy of our praise, think about these things. That last one, worthy of praise, this comes up in uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 12, where he talks about, I can just flip there, where he's talking to, um, I'm going to have to just flip there. He's giving a word to a pastor there to do, to focus, do things that are worthy of praise. The one that's sticking out in my mind the most besides uh, the word that actually pops in Titus chapter 3 is uh, Romans chapter 13, where Paul uses this word to describe, don't let the government punish you for doing what is evil, but instead do what is commendable. 
and worthy of praise. See, when I, we take up this list and we sometimes these eight principles here and run it by our entertainment through, what I'm not saying is that you need to be only reading scripture and read nothing else. I'm not saying that every conversation outside of these four walls needs to be about the Bible or about some Christian topic. If you're in a pharmacy like I was, it's okay to talk about pills. If you're a farmer, it's okay to talk about cows or the field or plowing. If you're a software engineer, it's okay to talk about computers. I might not be able to follow it all away, you know, follow you along in that conversation, but you can talk about it. That's fine. What we're given here is principles that are to govern our thinking, be filled with these things so that when we talk about computers, when we talk about farming, when we talk about anything, we don't need to be just talking about scripture, but we need to have scripture informing the way that we talk, forming the way we think about everything, forming the way that we work. Because these, this program that God gives us for thinking is also our program for doing. Look at verse 9. For what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. What we have here is kind of a word that people don't really like too much today is we have the tradition of Scripture. We've been given a body of everything that all of God's uh, people have written that are in the inerrant, fallible word of God written through men that has been passed down to us, and we've received it as a tradition. This is the tradition, by the way, that we're to guard and not let be touched. Any of our traditions and the way we do things in church that's not rooted in the apostolic tradition, the New Testament and the Old Testament, that's not to bind our hearts. Our tradition that we have received, learned, heard, and seen in Paul is one that the Apostle Paul has passed down. When talking about traditions, especially, you know, about why we do things in churches that um, mean that the Reformed tradition, the way we do things as Presbyterians, that I think that that's not the right way. No, that's, that's not true. And the reason why, and I'm not sure how familiar everyone in this room is with the Reformed tradition, but the Reformers sought with all their being to submit every tradition that we have in the church, everything that we do to the word of God. Is it biblical? Asking the question, is it biblical? Would Paul have had us performing masses, sacrificing Christ every single day on a table? No? Well, we need to get rid of it. Would Paul have us doing exorcisms? Have we, did, in, anywhere in the Bible, have we seen, learned, received, heard in Paul of him doing exorcisms on babies? No? We got to get rid of it. But also, because of that, this tradition, this apostolic tradition that we have is also restricting what we are to think about God or things that we do in church. We don't, we're not free to add ceremonies in how we want to worship God because it seems good to us. No, what we're restricted by is what Paul has taught us, what we've received, what we've heard and seen in Scripture. It's to regulate everything that we do. And you know, if we do these things, 
if we have uniform worship because it's regulated by the Bible, if we have uniform thinking because it's just like Christ's thinking, and if we have uniform living because we've passed it through this test and what we're imbibing, we're going to be at peace with one another. We're going to be at peace with ourselves, and we'll be living according to the God of peace as he has commanded us. First and foremost, if you were to look at those lists, true, honorable, pure, just, lovely, commendable, if you just look at Christ himself, he is the perfect demonstration of all of these characteristics. We are to be growing in our Christ-likeness in all these ways. The God of peace has provided us with a plan for harmony to be at peace with one another. He's provided us with a prescription for our anxieties by trusting in his sovereignty, seen in the way that we pray and bear our souls out to him, knowing that he loves us and cares for us. And we also know that living, uh, living before the God of peace, this program for living that we've been given in his word, here in this comprehensive list of eight things that we can do a list of will help us to live at peace in the world. If we're going to be persecuted by people, it should be because we're Christians, because we love the Lord and serve him. We should not be persecuted for any other reason. But at the foundational level, all these things that we've been talking about, being at peace with other people, peace within ourselves, living a good life, all these things are things that the world desires, right? Everyone, who, who any, what non-Christian would not want to be at peace with other people? I'm pretty sure non-Christians also have uh, marital conflict that they hate and despise and would love to have a solution to. I'm sure that non-Christians would love to have a prescription for all their anxieties when yoga is not working because they keep clearing their mind, but not filling it with anything godly. And I'm pretty sure non-Christians would love to live a life that gets them out of trouble and one that has uh, the roots and groundings of success in it to be at peace in the world. But you know what the world does not want? The very foundation from which these things flow, which is peace with God. The very foundation of all these things is that we are at peace with God because we were born sinners. We're born at enmity with God. We're enemies of the one true living God because we sin. And the wages of our sin is death. But the free gift of God that's offered to everyone who has ears to hear in this room is salvation in Christ. If you have ears on your head, believe in him. Trust in him. Be at peace with God. And you know what? Once you're at peace with God, all these things come. But if you come for the benefits, you're missing out on eternal life. If you seek peace to have a happy life, you'll have a happy life here. You're, you'll live your best life now but your eternity will be in hell, separated from God forever. Our peace with God is most important. It is the very foundation of all these things. God, The God of peace 
will be with us. That's how this ends. That's what we want, to be at peace with God and living at peace with each other out of our relationship with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being our God. Thank you for not sparing your son, for dying for the ungodly so that we might become the children of God and might be spared from God's righteous and good revenging wrath. Lord, we thank you that when you saved us, you did not leave us on our own, but you placed us in the body of Christ where we belong and where we are with people, real concrete people, not just an idea, but people who are saved by you, who put their trust in you. We're all going to the same destination, and that is such a marvelous thing. And Lord, we confess that we are not perfect. We are not complete. We are not sinless. And as sinners, we are at conflict all the time. Thank you, Lord, for giving us empowerment by your Holy Spirit to be at peace with one another. And also giving us the wisdom in your word. Lord, I do pray that we would fill our minds with what is pure. That we would not entertain ourselves and choose what we want to do and how we want to spend our time over and without running it through and running it by your word and what it says. I pray that you would give us the strength to do these things and the wisdom. I pray that we would all hold each other accountable to those things, that we would not generate some legalistic list of things to avoid and things to uh, do, but instead that we would be encouraging one another. Don't eat dirt. Don't eat filth, but instead eat and be satisfied on the word of God. Live a life that's worthy of the gospel that we have been saved by. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ's name, I pray. Amen.